0: Love Talk
1: Radio.
0: You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, August thirtieth, twenty sixteen, and I'm your host, Ariel Taylor, with my co hosts Lavendar and Anastasia. Well, Mercury went retrograde today, so uh, if you don't know what that's all about, you can go on our website to the um, events or headline news page and read up on that because there are certain things that you might want to wait on until, you, until it goes direct um, near the end of September. So our special guest this evening is Rich, Richard Estep, who is a paranormal investigator with 20 years' experience working in both the United States and the United Kingdom. He's the author of several books, including In Search of the Paranormal, The World's Most Haunted Hospitals, and The Haunting of Asylum 49, which he co-authored with Cami Anderson. His work has been featured on the program Haunted Case Files, aired on Destination America, He's a regular guest speaker at conventions on both sides of the Atlantic, and is currently at work on his next book, which covers his investigation of Britain's haunted witches' prison. It's called The Cage. When not writing books and investigating the paranormal, Richard makes his living as a paramedic and a volunteer firefighter. You can check out his website, which is Richard step That's R I C H A R D. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to Starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And we'd like to thank Tammy and Fiona for hosting the Switchboard this evening for any listeners that may have a question or comment. If you'd like to chat with like-minded people, we have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other Starseeds, thanks to Tammy's dedication and help with our forum. You can download any show in our archives, which is now uh, 295 episodes uh, from iTunes or right from our Blog Talk Radio episode page using the cloud with an arrow on it. We'd appreciate your support of our show, and you can do that by clicking follow on our page here at Blog Talk, and you'll get our weekly show notices so you know what's coming up. The toll-free number for Starseed Hotline is 888 881 The Stage 1 Starseed Confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings in your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. For those who need healing of any kind for yourself or your pets, Tammy's powerful remote sessions will help. If you have a birthday coming up, you don't want to miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And then if you want the stage two interpretation of that chart, please order it two or three months ahead of time to make sure you get it in before your 10 hours because we do have a waiting list. So first this evening, I would like to introduce Anastasia with her ever-popular Starseed
2: news. Take it away, Anastasia. <laughs> Good evening, Ariel. Good evening, <laughs> Starseed listeners. Good evening, Lavendar. It's great to be with all of you. Well, we have a bit of news to cover, so I'd best get to it. Uh, the, sun- the Sunspot Complex AR-2582 is uh, crackling with minor flares at this time. They say other than that, solar activity is quite low, actually very low. But there's been a new study out uh, about the Sun and its impacts on Earth's climate. A team of scientists from Denmark and Israel have linked large solar eruptions to changes in Earth's cloud cover, in a study that's been based on over 25 years of satellite observations. They're telling us that Earth is under constant bombardment by particles from space, which we know as galactic cosmic rays. Now, violent eruptions at the sun's surface can blow these cosmic rays away from the Earth for somewhere in the space of about a week. Now, their study has shown that when the cosmic rays are reduced by that activity, there is a corresponding reduction in Earth's cloud cover. And since clouds are an important factor in controlling the temperature on Earth, their results could have implications for climate change. And we've had an asteroid zoom very close to us. My goodness, Saturday night. You know, it wasn't discovered until it was gone. (laughs) Yep, an asteroid safely passed our planet Saturday night, just hours after it was detected. Uh, Astronomers labeled a space rock as asteroid 2016 QA2. Now, the rock was estimated to be at least twice as big as the Chugyabinsk meteor that penetrated the atmosphere over Russia in 2013. Now, this space rock came considerably closer than the moon. It passed at just 0.22 Earth-moon distance. Now, that's about 52,000 miles away. And in comparison, the moon is situated about 239,000 miles from Earth. So this was a close one. Well, Japan scientists have detected a rare deep S-wave, Earth tremor, an S-wave Earth tremor, for the very first time. And, you know, I read this headline, and I read the article, and I thought, well, if they're detecting it for the first time, how do they well, – it seems like it should be unprecedented instead of rare. But anyway, be that as it may <laughs> – <laughs> they've never found it before, and indeed, I guess it's rare. Unprecedented. Scientists who study earthquakes in Japan said on last Thursday that they've detected a rare deep earth tremor and tracked its location to a distant and powerful storm in the ocean. Now, they use seismic equipment on land and on the seafloor that usually detects Earth crust crumbling during earthquakes, and they found a tremor which they call an S-wave microsism. The findings were published in the U.S. Journal Science, and they say it could help experts learn more about the Earth's inner structure and improve detection of earthquakes and oceanic storms. So uh, bad ocean storms, then, can create quakes. Now, they say that this S wave is something that people feel during an earthquake. When you're in a quake and you feel the movement, that is the S wave going on underneath your feet. Well, there's been a brand new 4.4 magnitude aftershock in Italy rattled the region and not far from the uh, town in central Italy where that area suffered a deadly earthquake about four days ago. Now, the powerful earthquake hit, uh, the big one, hit on Wednesday night, last Wednesday night, leaving at least 290 people dead and the death toll was still rising. The number of towns and villages were reduced to rubble, as I'm sure many of you saw that on mainstream television. They say that as many as 2,500 people lost their homes to the earthquake and more than 1,800 aftershocks have rocked this region since the first quake occurred. Rescue operations are still in progress. And in Mexico, the Colima volcano has erupted. That was yesterday this happened. The fire volcano that is called Colima spewed a large column of gas and ash into the air at some almost 8,000 feet. And Iceland has raised a warning after their largest volcano has started to, to rumble. Um, I say it's the biggest, one of the biggest tremors since 1977. There were two quakes larger than four point in magnitude that happened yesterday on the crater of Katla. Uh, this was followed by at least 10 more tremors at the volcano. So they are beginning to try to evacuate people and uh, raise alarms. They say that there is no immediate report of damage or casualty, but They've got their eyes on this one. And in the North Ascension Island, there was a 7.1 magnitude earthquake. North Ascension, excuse me, Ascension Island is in the Atlantic Ocean. And this is according to the USGS. There was no damage or tsunami warning issued by that. 7.1, though, is pretty good sized. And uh, in West Virginia, they had a chlorine gas leak, leak that prompted mass evacuations. Uh, two workers were hospitalized after there was an enormous leak in a rail tanker car at an Axial chemical plant near Proctor, West Virginia. It did force evacuation of numerous nearby communities as a cloud of highly toxic chlorine gas headed out of the facility. They said that it covered an area of 26 miles. Well, if you've ever cleaned a uh, a swimming pool, and been exposed to chlorine in dust form. You can really appreciate what that would be like. Chlorine is really a deadly thing. Uh, I guess no one was hurt, and that's very good. But rail cars do leak, and that's what's happened in West Virginia. Hawaii is bracing for back-to-back hurricanes, and meteorologists are predicting severe impacts. Now, according to the National Weather Service, the Hurricane Madeline, they say, will become dangerously close to the big island by tomorrow. <clears throat> Excuse me. They say that this is looking like the strongest top tropical cyclone in a number of years. And uh, last night, federal, state, and county agencies uh, gathered together at, uh, on Hilo uh, to discuss preparedness plans, and people all over Hawaii are making their preparations. Back-to-back hurricanes. Wow. Mm. Well, here's something out of weird... Weird, concerning science. I kid you not. Israeli University has created a mind-controlled nanobot, or nanobots, plural, from DNA. They've made it from DNA that could release drugs inside of your brain. Now, that's kind of hard to make sense of, so let me explain it. (laughs) A team in Israel has developed a system that allows precise control... Over when a drug is active in the body by placing nanobots inside of a living creature for the very first time. Uh, that's not all there is to the story, though. They, they wrote this story as if it's about drug delivery, but my goodness, wait till you hear the rest. The group has built nanobots out of DNA, forming shell-like shapes that drugs can be tethered to. Now, the bots also have a gate, which has a lock made from nanoparticles, The lock opens when heated using electromagnetic energy, exposing the drug to the internal environment. Now, because the drug remains tethered to the DNA parcel, the body's exposure to the drug can be controlled by closing and opening the gate. Well, to get the DNA bots to respond to a person's thoughts, the team trained a computer algorithm to distinguish between a person's brain activity when resting and when doing mental arithmetic Here's the real motive of this experiment, I I postulate. Well, then the team attached a fluorescent drug to the bots and injected them into a cockroach that sat inside of an electromagnetic coil. Now, the person wearing an EEG, which measures uh, electromagnetic activity in the brain, was then instructed either to do mental calculations or to just sit there and rest. The cap was connected to the electromagnetic coil, switching it on when the man was calculating and off when he was resting. By examining when fluorescence appeared inside different cockroaches, the team confirmed the cockroaches responded to what that man was thinking. Mind oh my control, God. be a bot. Oh, oh, my God. That's creepy. Well, I want to know if all of you got your mail today. Did you get your mail today, Ariel? all the rest of you? Any problems getting your mail? What about if you've lived in Orange County? Well, a California postal worker has been prosecuted now for stashing nearly 50,000 pieces of mail. That's right. Undelivered mail, a postal service employee, stashed 50,000 pieces of undelivered mail in her California apartment, according to a criminal uh, investigation. criminal uh, affidavit filed against the worker. Federal investigators are charging that this woman hit approximately, well, they're going to give the exact amount now, 48,288 pieces of U.S. mail, and the mail was intended for delivery to customers along her route in Orange County, California. Now, in similar previous prosecutions, can you believe it's happened before? Mail carriers have claimed that the volume on their routes was so enormous that they opted to hide the mail instead of delivering.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, <laughs> don't blame your next door neighbor if your package didn't get there. It's, <laughs> it just might be the postman decided he didn't want to lift anything today. Oh, word! That's wild. That's wild. Well, um, this is another uh, technologically concerning article. Uh, that Terminators may be built by armed enemies, according to top U.S. military officials. They are saying that the future of war will involve autonomous robots instead of humans. And this is according to an Air Force general and vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who warned that enemies could build Terminator-like machines to fight in battlefields. And speaking at the uh, Think Tank Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, he said the technology could be developed in, guess what, 10 years, and that the world's biggest military should pun- could punish and should punish anyone who pursues such weapons. Except us, of course, probably. <laughs> anyway, he said this is about an entirely robotic system, completely autonomous, that is not dependent on one human decision. We're told by the technologists that we're only a decade or less away from that capability.
4: Terminate.
2: Don't these people watch Star Trek? Man, Star you, Trek, you know.
4: You know I mean, if you movies. watch Star Trek, you'll see
2: why that's not a good idea. Yeah, like to the board, that. for instance. Yeah. Stuff like that, yeah. But, I mean, yeah. like, its sci-fi novels are, are becoming real. They are real. <laughs> Truth is stranger than fiction. Well, here's something interesting for us as Starseed. There's been a strong spike in radio signals that has been traced to a sun-like star that is sparking SETI's interest. SETI researchers are buzzing about a strong spike in radio signals that seem to come from the direction of a sun-like star in the constellation Hercules, known as HD 164595. Now, the signal, they say, conceivably fits the profile for an intentional transmission from an extraterrestrial source. But it could also be a case of earthly radio interference or a microlensing event in which the star's gravitational field uh, focused stray signals coming from much farther away. They always have to put that part in there. Anyway, in any case... The blip is interesting enough to merit discussion by those who specialize in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or SETI, and the apparent source of the signal is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, it's a sun-like star about 95 light years away from Earth, not very far, and it's already known to have at least one warm Neptune planet. Now, there could, of course, be other planets still undetected in this particular system, maybe the signals are coming from that direction. So they're going to investigate it. They're having meetings about it as we speak. Well, how many of you have ever heard somebody declare that they're going to live to be 100 with their nose up in the air like it's going to be such a fantastic accomplishment? Well, do you know that an Indonesian man claims to be the longest living human in recorded history? And uh, he says now that he's just ready to die. He was born on december thirty first eighteen seventy He's one hundred and forty- five years old. They say that he's that he has confirmed that his date of birth is genuine one hundred and forty- five years old, and he's just now ready to kind of give it up. What about that? The last I heard about the longest living human on Earth was like 112, something like that. Well, this supersedes this by a lot. Well, there have been several UFOs seen flying over Yellowstone. That's right. Chilling footage is revealing several large UFOs flying over Yellowstone Supervolcano, which alien hunters are now suggesting might be an alien base. Now, uh, sweeping through the clouds above Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming appears uh, what looks to be a massive flying cylinder more than 300 feet long above the Yellowstone Supervolcano. UFO hunters are saying that NASA has been interrupting its live feed whenever a UFO is near its International Space Station. And while scientists have long speculated that an eruption of the massive volcano could kill 100,000 people, UFO hunters now believe that the explosive sound of molten lava serves as a feeding source for alien life forms that are drawing on the volcanic energy. What do you all Hmm. think about that? Anyway, that that comes from Sputnik Magazine, by the way. You don't find stuff like that in American footage. Well, we all love dogs, don't we? I know, Ariel, you and I love dogs. Well, scientists have found evidence that dogs understand what you're saying. Now, I've known that all along. Huh? And of course. I've been to other, of course, and I've been to other of countries course. or been, been visiting foreign friends that might speak Spanish, and you say something to the dog and he acts like he can't hear you, but you say it in Spanish and he responds perfectly, right? They learn the language and they know what you're saying. Well, scientists have found evidence to support what you and I and other dog owners have long known, Ariel, that dogs really do understand at least some of what we're saying. Researchers in Hungary have scanned, there we go again, scanned the brains of dogs as they were listening to their to their trainer speaking to them. And they were determining which parts of the brain these dogs were using. Well, what they found out was that the dogs processed words with the left hemisphere, while information or intonation, excuse me, tone was processed with their right hemisphere, just like us, just like humans. And what's more, The dogs only registered that they were being praised if the words and intonation were positive, meaning the words spoken in an encouraging voice or meaningful words in a neutral tone didn't have the same effect. They read your meaning. So, researchers are saying that these findings suggest that the neural capacities to process words that were thought by many to be uniquely human are actually shared with other species and this study has been published in the journal Science. Is that cool? are oh, well, finding what we've already Science is just catching up with, the re- constantly catching up with what the rest of us knows. And when it's not catching up with, the rest of us, with what the rest of us knows, it's just getting into mischief. So, there you have <laughs> it. Uh, it's going to be a great show tonight. Arielle, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and it we'll catch sure you again next week. I hope you all have a beautiful week.
0: Well, thank you so much, Anastasia, for bringing us the Starseed News. Um, and we'll look forward to it uh, again next week. So with that, I am going to um, bring our guest online. And um, I have to apologize, Richard. I mispronounced your name. It's Richard Estep. So let me get your mic open here. Hello, Richard.
1: Good evening. How are you?
0: I'm just fine. Let me get Lavendar on. Okay, Lavendar, can you hear us?
3: Yes, I can.
1: All
0: righty, then take it away.
3: Okay, Richard, this book that you've written, The Haunting Asylum of uh, The Haunting of Asylum 49, is an absolute fantastic read. And what a wonderful writer you and and Cammy. And have been bringing this information forward. So let me ask you at the beginning: When did you start getting interested in being a paranormal investigator?
1: Well, I would I would say that I've had a lifelong interest in in the paranormal, uh, stemming from when I was a young boy and grew up in a house that, according to my grandparents, was very haunted. And although I never experienced anything paranormal there myself, it left me with a fascination to learn more about the subject, which is what led me to eventually join the team and conduct investigations an investigation for myself.
3: Okay. So uh, bring us up to speed on how you found this amazing um, place. I-, I was noticing wh- when I was reading the book that there's quite a history of land there. It was Indian land, and then the-, the-, the Donner-Reed party came through there. A lot of stuff's been happening on that land where this hospital was built. Can you... Uh, tell us a little bit more about
1: that. Well, the, the hospital has an interesting location itself because it is situated next to the town cemetery. And so you have um, also the rear part of the hospital building itself is a retirement home for senior citizens. Next door is the town cemetery and the hospital itself, which is now converted into being a Halloween haunted house attraction. So the land itself was and remains to this day extremely interesting indeed.
3: Yeah. So give us a a little taste of some of the things that you found in in this hospital. I I was especially interested on page 96 when you talked about Jacob's letter.
1: Well, where to begin with the hospital, I said we could fill a book, and we did, and we really haven't hit everything. (laughs) Um, I think the the most interesting thing that we encountered was some of the entities that like to communicate with the living. Uh, So it's, it's It's one thing to get residual uh, encounters, the sounds of um, a hospital going about its everyday business, you know, the sounds of life support machines and uh, chatter coming over the PA system and doctors and nurses talking and wheelchair wheels squeaking. All those kind of things are fairly common. But we also had a number of sessions um, conducted with spirit boxes and with um, EVP recorders where we were able to make contact with what seemed to be some very intelligent and not always nice, spiritual entities there in the hospital.
3: Yeah, tell us a little bit about your communication with Robert.
1: With um, Robert? Yeah. Well, we can't be sure who we were communicating with, which is quite interesting. Robert is one of the entities at the asylum, but uh, there are multiple, and at least one of them likes to pretend to be with the waters significantly. Uh, the most uh, intriguing interaction we had was in the hallway outside room 6, uh, which, thanks to the fact that, again, this is now a haunted house attraction, has been renamed, renumbered, rather, room 666. And a series a series of um, interactions that we had with an SB-11 spirit box, which, if you're not familiar with this device, it basically scans radio frequencies, and it's hypothesized that uh, this kind of entities can use that to to deliver phrases, deliver sentences. This device began talking to us and answering our questions, um, including listing the names of several investigators present, including my own, uh, throwing a couple of insults at me, and then being rather sexually suggestive of one of our female investigators who also happens to be a registered nurse.
3: Wow. How'd that go over? <laughs>
1: Well, you got not mess with a registered nurse, so she did not take that um, uh, in her stride. She, I should say she did take it in her stride. She did not take it lying down. She was very clear about not being uh, spoken to in that particular manner.
3: Yeah. So tell me, how did you meet Cammy?
1: Your... Well, I was working on a uh, And I'd heard it. Uh,
3: you're you're, your blipping in Id- not and out. are you stationary with your cell phone?
1: Yes, I am. I am. Okay. So as I was saying, I was working on a book called The World's Most Haunted Hospitals, also with, Cam- um, excuse me, not with Cami. I'd reached out to her because I'd heard about the old Tuella Hospital itself. Uh-huh. And Kim, uh, who are co-owners the island with a lady called Kathy, uh, invited me I really like that attitude. You know, they didn't try to sell me on anything. Oh yeah, you should you should feature our our, um, our hospital or anything like that. They said, come figure out for yourself if you think our, our hospital is haunted. So I made a road trip from Colorado to Utah, um, an extremely long distance road trip, about a thousand miles door to door. And uh, I took two fellow investigators. We went for uh, Saturday night. So we started out in the morning in the spring of last year. Stayed overnight and then returned the following day, and we had a very, very quiet night. To be honest with you, it was quite disappointing. So uh, I spoke to uh, the owners of the asylum afterwards and said, you know, this really wasn't that impressive an experience at all. And they said, the problem is, you came in the springtime. We are not in season right now. Asylum 49 is returned to being just an old abandoned hospital after the Halloween season. But it's during those um, weeks, September, October, and November, when they have over 30,000 people coming through the doors, that the place becomes most paranormally active because that's a great deal of energy that's coming into the building thanks to those visitors. And they said, you should really come in in uh, October when we are at our peak, and you should see what you can find then. So I I thought that makes sense. However, it's a, a long way to come for... For a night or just a weekend, and I asked them, "Would you mind if I moved in?" And so they said, "Sure. Why don't you come for a week? We'll give you the keys to the place. And when it's not um, in operation, you know, once it's closed down for the night and before it opens up, you can have help, Blanche to investigate wherever you will, and see what you can uncover. And the result of that week's investigation, along with the eyewitness testimony of the many uh, people we interviewed. Uh, with the genesis of this book, The Haunting of Asylum 49.
3: So things started happening, what, the first night that you you Mm -hmm. were there?
1: (laughs) Yeah, immediately. And, of course, it's very fitting that the first night we were there happened to be Halloween night. Oh! So so what we did first of all was kind of eased ourselves into it. You know, there there was a queue around the block and down the street to get into the asylum um, starting when the doors opened late that night. So we actually kind of hung out and watched people going through and went through the haunted house attraction ourselves um, getting the same experience as the customers did and so it was after that that we would begin to investigate and we stayed there for the rest of the week living in the asylum and um, investigating for as long as we could stay awake
3: so how many different entities did you come in contact with during that one
1: week Well, I can tell you how many are there, at least 15. We came into specific contact with four or five of them. And it's difficult to set them apart because, of course, they don't check in and wear name tags when you're using Ouija boards and, and other communications techniques. So it's impossible to say exactly how many of them were discrete, different entities and how many were the same entity in multiple areas, you know, pretending to be somebody else.
3: Didn't you have a doctor that was uh, hanging hanging out there that was pretty, um, uh, what was the word you used in your book? Um, kind of cantankerous, well, this, I guess.
1: That, that's not a bad way to put it, and I've known plenty of real-life doctors that said that description. Um, so, again, we're not entirely sure if we encountered him or not. We conducted a, a simulation in the old emergency room. We would simulate a cardiac arrest, much as would have happened there, in the days of the, the hospital actually being open. And my theory for that, the premise was that this man was said to be very regimented, very by the book. He did not suffer fools gladly, and his approach was very much, it's my way or the highway. And so I thought that if we ran this simulated cardiac arrest, and we did it very, very badly indeed, like the Keystone Cops, you know, um, we might perhaps get him to respond. We might stimulate uh, a response from him. Now, somebody or something did indeed respond after our cardiac arrest, but we can't say for sure whether it was the doctor or the spirit of one of the nurses who is also said to um, be active in that part of the hospital.
3: So did you have some children, some children's spirits that appeared?
1: I, I believe I saw one the, the first time in my career. It's a 20-year career investigating haunted locations. And I believe for the first time in that 20-year career that I encountered the apparition of a child. And it was on that first night, that first Halloween night. And before we were going to investigate, it was an hour before the asylum was due to close down. And I said to the owners, hey, do you mind if I go through just as Joe Public, you know, I'll put I'll in behind one of the groups and um, I'll get the same experience they do. And they said, sure, we'll be watching you on the closed-circuit TV monitors as you go through So I did. I went through. I had a great time. I was chased by clowns, wielding chainsaws, and all kinds of horrific things. It was a great deal of fun. And then at one point, I came around a a turn in the corridor, and I saw a young girl um, with blonde hair wearing an old-fashioned style dress, and she was tugging on the, the shirt of a lady who was obviously a customer. And I remember thinking at the time, Wow you know she she looks great She really looks the part this young girl But she's kind of young to be working here And I find out afterwards That this girl who appeared to have 8 years of age Most of the staff uh, The volunteers at Simon 49 Are at least 13 or 14 years old And so Anyway I, I thought no more of it She was towing this lady forward The lady seemed obviously reluctant to go with her You know she was a little bit Scared or nervous and this little girl Was grinning and giggling and then I moved on. Uh, I was distracted by the fact that um, a gentleman playing the role of a monster fired a fake shotgun in my direction and made me jump halfway out of my skin. And when I got back to the CCTV um, control room, the security center, I told the owners, I said, hey, that's, um, is, aren't you a little worried about having a girl that young working here? And they looked at one another and said, describe this girl to us. And so I did, and they said, yeah, there is nobody like that working here tonight. Uh, You saw one of the resident child spirits. And I said, that's not possible. This girl was as solid as you or I. And so they said, I tell you what, let's go to the green room, which is where the actors, the performers, um, all take off their makeup and relax at the end of the night and talk about their experiences. So they said, nobody's left yet, so you can go through and see if you can spot this young girl. And I went in there, and I checked out every single face and she was not in there, this girl. And so I said, maybe she was a customer there. Maybe she came with her mom, and that's who she was pulling through uh, into the next room. And they said, no, we would not let a child that young into this place. It's, it's quite adult-themed. We're not going to let, you know, an 8-year-old girl into a location like this with blood and horror all over the place. It wouldn't be appropriate so she's one of the many child ghosts that uh, that seem to walk the halls of the old hospital.
3: So she looks solid, like solid, right?
1: Yeah, and I'll tell you, I, I still kick myself to this day almost a year later because having investigated so many claims of ghosts and apparitions over the past uh, 20 years, I've always interviewed witnesses and thought to myself, You had a cell phone in your pocket. You had a camera right there. Did it not occur to you to pull that thing out and take a photograph? And yet, when I was in that situation myself, I did have my phone camera right there in my pocket. And at no point did the thought enter my head, hey, you're looking at an apparition. Take a picture.
3: I bet you really kicked yourself over that one.
1: (laughs) Still doing it. And the the solution uh, which I implemented afterwards and that I'm going to implement again this year is to get a GoPro camera, um, so one of those cameras that mounts to your head or to your chest, and it records whatever you're looking at.
3: Yeah, good good plan. Good plan. Well, will you be returning to Asylum 49 for any reason?
1: I will. I'll be returning to Asylum 49 this Halloween because it really hasn't given up all of its answers yet. Um, there are still spirits there, I think, whose stories need to be told. I think, I think it's, it's a very it's fertile laboratory environment uh, to make contact with them, as long as it's done respectfully. And I would like to probe further into the, into the answers, the mysteries that are still there. So I'll be going back for another week and taking a team in over the course of the Halloween this year.
3: Uh, let me ask you: Did you notice uh, any quartz crystal? Or what? What's the land like there? What kind of stones? I'm wondering what kind of of electromagnetic yeah. vibration is enhancing all this activity there.
1: You know, I was busy enough. I can't say that I performed any kind of uh, geological survey, so that I cannot tell you at this time.
3: Yeah, okay. Just It's it's uh, interesting to me that certain places on the planet seem to to resonate to you know some type of quartz crystal that amplifies mm-hmm. everything. So I'm just, you know, maybe when you go back the next time, maybe you'll take a look and see if you have a lot of quartz around there.
1: Yeah, it's, it's certainly something to look at.
3: Yeah. So, what projects are you cur- currently working on now?
1: Well, I I'm finishing up um next year's book. It's due to be released next autumn, next fall for our American readers. And it's called Spirits of the Cage, co-written with a lady named Vanessa Mitchell. Um and it involves the weeks that I spent uh living in and researching England's oldest witch's prison in a village Woo. called St Saint, St. Saint Vanessa owned the cage. Oh, she actually still does, but she fled the house with her young baby boy uh, quite a few years ago and is unable to live there anymore because of the the nature of the paranormal activity, which plagues the place. Yeah. And so, again, I I very much like the idea of not just going for a night or two, and I moved into the cage for a week along with um, three paranormal investigators and a priest, which sounds like a great setup for a joke, (laughs)
2: Uh, you know? yeah.
1: Three paranormal investigators and a priest walk into a haunted prison. But it was a, a very interesting experience, and I'm I'm writing that up right now for publication next year.
3: So, uh, how how old is this place? How, the the building was it built like in 1700 or 1800? What years? It? Oh,
1: it predates that. We're talking about the 1580s. Oh wow! Uh, when when England had its equivalent of the Salem witch trials, you had. Uh, a vile man by the name of Matthew Hopkins, the witch finder general who was um, instilling fear across the land. You know, he would turn up in villages and root out so-called witches and they would be put to death if found guilty at kangaroo courts. It it gave me an opportunity to delve into that whole aspect of this dark, forgotten age of English witchcraft and the fact that some of it still resonates with us today.
3: What part of England is this place?
1: It's on the coast and it's, uh, a very small village called St. Osif, named after um, well, a lady called Osef, who was killed by Vikings because she refused to give up her Christian faith. And as the tale goes, um, Osef was beheaded. She picked up her own head walked back into the village that would soon be named after her, hammered on the church door three times, and then dropped her head and fell down and died.
3: Whoa! <laughs> Oh, that that's going to make a good movie.
1: <laughs> it certainly could. It certainly has all the ingredients, and it was a fascinating case to investigate and a location to spend some time in. So I'd be delighted to come back next year when that book is released and, and tell you some more about the
3: uh, We would love for you to come back and tell us about that. Absolutely. But what's the most haunted place that you've ever spent time in?
1: You know, that's a that's a really tough question. I'm going to go. I know this sounds like a very cheesy answer, but I am going to go with Asylum 49. Um, not just because that's my most current book, but because the week that I spent living there was, I think, the most bizarre and paranormally active week I've ever spent in my entire life. And I've been to many places that are on the list of supposedly the world's most haunted. You know, I spent a night at the Waverly Hills Sanatorium in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, where thousands of people are, are di- said to have died of tuberculosis. And I went to Bobby Mackey's Music World. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah. That's in that's in that's Wilder, cool. Kentucky. And some people have claimed that it's a gateway to hell. It certainly wasn't the night I went there. It was the gateway to, to a good night's sleep almost. It was very quiet. <laughs> and I'm also a tour guide at the very haunted Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. I give ghost tours there. You might know that as the um, inspiration for Stephen King's novel, The Shining. Yes, I've been there, but, yes. Mm. Oh, so you, you know, Stanley, it's beautiful. And it is very, very active indeed. But I think, at least based on my personal experience, it's Island 49, currently the, the front runner.
3: So when you're in these places, um, how do you emotionally um, guard yourself?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I used to be very, very skeptical, and I am still skeptical to a degree. Um, I do believe in having an open mind, but a mind is kind of like a skip. If it's too open, people will throw all kinds of rubbish into it. Um, so I do try and maintain a skeptical demeanor, but at the same time I've, I've become aware that you have to, to protect yourself emotionally and, and, and psychically in certain kinds of ways. So I tend to do that by visualizing um, white energy surrounding me and protecting me. And I'm very clear about the fact that no entities are permitted to leave the environment that I'm in. They're not permitted to attach themselves to me or to any members of my team and accompany us from that location, which almost always works.
3: Well, I had something happen today on several occasions. Uh, Do you think – there's a possibility that some of these astrals are tracking your book <laughs> because I've had a lot of poltergeist activity today, and I usually don't have it.
1: Oh really? oh, really? Yeah. Do tell.
3: So it's like, okay, like, you know, do they know that we're going to be talking about this book, and do they have to come and and make themselves known? <laughs> you know, like things. I'd I'd put down my my uh, walkabout phone. And go into the kitchen, then I'd come back and get it, and it wouldn't be there. And I'd go, oh! And then in a little bit, it'd come back again. And then I had another phone that I, um, a little cell phone that I had plugged in to to load to load it up, and it said, uh, "We can't." Uh, the reason your phone went off was because uh, because it was heated. Well, it was in the bathroom in a cold bathroom. It wasn't heated. Mm-hmm. And just stuff like that and and the lights would flash a little bit today, and it was just um it was just kind of uh, an awareness of something. I'm not sure what oh. it was, but it it was not it was not a normal day here. let's just put it that way <laughs> well
1: I, I i don't know I don't wanna give you a flip and because anything's possible, but i can tell you that I haven't had that experience with any of the other interviews we've done or other readers of the book, yeah,
3: okay, well it just may it just may be something else that's that's creeping up here <laughs> and not that at all but i now thought that's kind me of
1: nervous. Bit,
3: that since we were going to be talking that i started having all kinds of things happening here at the house so oh. tell us a little bit more about um some of your experiences um there with with Cammie. Uh, bring her in a little bit I, I i was sorry that she wasn't able to uh, join us this evening and maybe she Maybe the switchboard has her by now. I I, I called and left no. word for her to call, so I don't know if if she's available. If uh, Ariel, if you can see the switchboard.
0: No, no I've been looking.
3: I, oh, okay, so tell us a little bit about you and Cami and how you came together, writing this book together, and and um, some ex- examples of uh, how you got along and and where where she really fits in this story.
1: Well. Having met her um, when I was researching the the hospital originally for World's Most Haunted Hospitals, um, she and I had talked a little bit about the background, and she is, of course, one of the experts on um, the haunting of the asylum because she lives right next door, and she spends many, many hours um, each year inside that building does her husband, Kim. Um, so I thought that she would make an excellent co-author because she knows so much about the gone on at the asylum in the past, Um, and I thought she would be the ideal person to talk about the past history of the building, what had happened there before I arrived, and then we would segue into my investigation halfway through the book, and that would give a good um, mix of past and present. And so Cami did investigate with us uh, overnight several times, uh, spent some time with us, gave us some um, indications on which were the more active hotspots within the building and where we should focus our attentions and focus some of our uh, equipment.
3: I noticed uh, on page 100 there's a picture of Autumn. It's showing scratches that appeared on her shoulder after a disturbing spirit box session, which was held in the doorway of room 666. Can you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, that um, that was interesting. Autumn had never been on a paranormal investigation before. Uh, The reason that she accompanied us was that her mom is a friend of mine who is a paramedic, and I had wanted to investigate with a team of not just paranormal investigators but medical professionals, what with this being an old hospital. So I had wanted some paramedics and nurses, and her mom had agreed to come along and, and spend a week there with us and also had asked if she could come along. And I thought, well, it's always good to bring in somebody that has not done this before because they lack most of the biases that those of us that have investigated for years have developed. It's bringing someone in with a relatively untainted view of the circumstances. And so I agreed to let her come along. And this particular spirit book session was being conducted by several of my investigators, and I was sitting in the um, security room monitoring the asylum on the CCTV cameras. We had locked the place up securely, but you always want to rule out the possibility that there is a human intruder, you know, that is playing tricks on you, playing jokes, and is otherwise disturbing your uh, location. So I was sitting there monitoring and, and just kind of in a world of my own, moving my gaze from camera to camera, when suddenly one of my investigators put his head around the door and said, hey, you need to come listen to this spirit box because it's making fun of you. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, it's, it said your name, your full name, and it's now making fun of you in your accent. It's talking uh, with an English accent. And I said, well, this I've got to hear. So we went out to, I went out with him to the doorway of room 666 and was listening in to this spirit box session, and it had just been rather um, insulting to one of the female nurses. It had told her to bend over, and it had called her a name that I, wouldn't, I won't repeat um, yeah to sully the ears of your listeners, but it was quite a foul word. Called her that a couple of times, made some lewd suggestions, and then it said Autumn's name, uh, and, and it said it twice, and it was in answer to the question, who else is here with us? So that, that rather impressed me as an intelligent response to a question. And then uh, it was only when Autumn and her mother returned to their uh, hotel room the following morning for a quick nap before the next day's investigation that uh, her mom texted me a photograph of some deep gouges in Autumn's back and scratches and said these uh, turned up when Autumn took off her shirt. And they were in long, straight lines of of three. So I I texted them to a friend of mine who was a priest, the same priest, Father Stephen Wiedner, that uh, accompanied me to the cage earlier uh, this year. And I said, Stephen, what do you make of these? These just turned up on one of and new investigators' shoulders and back uh, at Asylum 49. And he said, well, you, you are aware that when you see three scratches like that, it's often regarded by people, at least in the Christian faith, as being a sign of the demonic. Huh? Oh.
3: Are you there? Uh, Did he leave? Yeah. I, I, I
1: am. Yeah. So that, uh, that that was interesting because I've heard that from uh, other people, Catholics and, and folks of, of that um, particular faith. I've heard that before. And uh, certainly which whatever the entity was which was communicating through the spirit box, it went from being relatively playful to being verbally abusive and nasty over a relatively short period of time.
3: Tell me how this, this spirit box is built. What's it made of?
1: Well, it's essentially a radio frequency scanner, and it hops through um, uh, various radio frequencies at a rate which you, the user, set. So it takes a chunk of one frequency and then hops to the next higher one and then hops to the next one. It's like taking slices of various different radio frequencies. And the theory goes that some entities are able to somehow piggyback on those frequency carrier waves, and they're able to get in intelligent messages. Uh, which sounds kind of odd, but I've seen spirit boxes work very, very effectively in the past. So, so have you taken you? these
3: spirit boxes with you on other investigations? Has this been something that mm-hmm. you've been doing for several years, using a spirit box?
1: Yes, and, and it's also something which is it's quite widely used in the paranormal research community.
2: Okay. Um, spirit
1: box, honestly, is a name that I really should use simply because it carries you know, various connotations and implications implications. It's a radio frequency scanner is what it is. It scans through the radio frequencies and um, basically generates white noise and allows or or supposedly allows spirits to make their voices heard um, in the gaps between those frequencies.
3: When you talked about the little girl that you saw had you ever found anybody else that had seen her before you arrived? Was there there evidence of her being there at, at other times?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in fact, uh, we, we put this story in the book, but we talked to at least one witness um, who had encountered her going through the maze. So there, there are several mazes, like any good haunted house should have. One is made of mirrors, one is made of, of black trash bags, and there is now, just to make things even worse, a maze which is full of clowns. You know, because if you want to make things really scary, you add clowns, um, and. We talked to this witness who said she and her husband had been through, and they ran into this little girl who had uh, lost her mother. And she was quite upset, and they said, Don't cry, little girl. We'll we'll help you find your mother. Just come with us. So she did. She smiled. She went with the couple. And then at some point during the maze, um, which is quite dark, she disappeared again. And it was only when this lady and her husband had heard about the child's spirits, their descriptions, that she realized, that that was who she'd run into in the maze. It was one of the ghostly children.
3: You know, I've got a and feeling the, that when you go back there, she's going to pose for you next time so you can take a picture
1: of her. I really hope so, um, and I'm not beyond bribery, so I'm going to take some toys uh, <laughs> along with me. There, there is a room. Uh, there is a room that is filled entirely with dolls, and she has been seen in that area. I mean, it is filled from floor to the rafters, with hundreds and hundreds of dolls. And some of them are, are relatively small, but some of them are human size, um, And all of them look rather creepy, as, as you would expect from a room full of dolls. So I'm going to take something a, a little nicer, I think, for her, just for her own, to see if I can't tempt her out to, to make contact. And, uh, by the way, I encourage your listeners to go to the Asylum49 website, um, asylum49.com, and if they do that, they can hear some EVPs. And one of the EVPs, which was recorded, is the girl herself singing. It's oh. a very—it's no pun intended. It's a very distant, haunting voice. Uh, quite plainly, a little girl singing. And they also recorded a little boy who is asking his mother for a blanket because he's cold.
3: Huh. Wow. I noticed that you mentioned the Green Mile in here a lot. Uh, I haven't read that chapter. Is, is that something that, that would be interesting to for our listeners to know about?
1: Well, I hope so, or I haven't done my job properly. Okay. Um, the, the, the Green Mile is um, the nickname of a long stretch of corridor, which actually leads to a pair of locked doors, behind which is the retirement home for senior citizens. And that retirement home actually is closing down in February of next year, and they are moving the senior citizens to a newer um, facility, at which point it will become part of Asylum 49. Um, But on either side of the Green Mile, you have some very interesting rooms. Um, One of them is built as if it is a cabin in the woods, and it is the beginning of the older part of the hospital and is haunted by a very negative dark entity that's nicknamed the Guardian. And it's a part of Asylum 49 in which quite a few of the guides, um, quite a few of the volunteers, will not go alone or will not go at all because of the experiences they've had with this particular spirit. Hmm.
4: Wow. <laughs> I wouldn't go. <laughs> oh my
1: goodness. Well, I, I did. I went. I went after him. Um, and, and had a very interesting confrontation with him. Well, tell
3: us what happened.
1: Well, he it's important to know that he's, he's, no, he's called the Guardian, which sounds like a rather reassuring um, nickname, doesn't it? But it's, he's called that because in life, at least, he's said to have been the Guardian of Secrets. He was that employee of the hospital that liked to know everybody's business, and he took the approach that knowledge is power and he saw himself as the guardian of, of the hospital secrets, and he would use them um, at his discretion to get what he wanted. And wow. repeatedly when I talk to the people that have encountered him, the same description comes up over and over again. He's tall, he's very uh, dark, he's a shadow figure, sometimes as high as seven feet tall. And the key word that I hear repeated over and over again is bully. This is a bully. He likes to intimidate. He likes to instill fear. He believes that he is the um, alpha male, for want of a better term, in that part of the uh, old hospital. And so when I heard that, I've always had a lifelong aversion to bullies because I was a very badly bullied child. Um, It made my life a misery, and I have no tolerance for it today. So when I heard about this, I I wanted to go um, and face him and see what he had to say for himself. And I was also open to the possibility that, hey, maybe he's simply misunderstood. Maybe he's gotten a bad rep. So uh, along with my fellow investigator, Sean Rice, I was able to talk the resident psychic, Misty Grimstead, into coming with us into the guardian's area and seeing if we could draw him out. So just the three of us, we locked up the entire hospital so there was nobody else there. We were the only ones in it. And then turned down the lights, and we went into the mazes, which are his territory, looking for him, and what happened? <laughs> well, he came out all right um i was I was borderline disrespectful with him, which is something rare I believe in being as respectful as possible when trying to communicate with spirits but When you hear about some of the things that this spirit has done, such as, you know, scratching people, biting them, pushing them, causing injuries, I really wasn't feeling particularly cognizant of his feelings at the time. And so I, I asked him to come on out, and the psychic medium was telling me, you know, he is, he's here, he's coming right towards you, he's directly in your face, and he is yelling at you. He is screaming. And personally, I couldn't see anything, and I said, you know, Misty, what's his beef? What's his problem? And she said, he doesn't like you, and he doesn't like you specifically, Richard, because you are not afraid of him, and you're an authority. You know, you are, you are acting as though you're the boss here, not him, and he hates that. So I began laughing at him and, and saying, if, if this really is the best you can do, I'm not frightened at all. I'm not intimidated. You know, do your worst. And at that point, she said, he, he, he's retreating. He's tucking his tail between his legs, and he's leaving. And I was very—I would have found it very, very easy to just write that off as something she had been making up. You know, it's, it sounds like a great story. But then we heard the clump, clump, clump of footsteps walking away from us, getting further and further into the maze until they vanished.
3: Wow. <laughs> Ooh. You're a really brave soul to do all this, I'm telling you. Wow. I don't think you have a one drop of fear in your body or you wouldn't be doing this.
1: Well, I think we all have a certain fear of the unknown and I think we all have a certain fear of the dark as well that's instilled in us at an early age. But there is no there is no knowledge without um, pushing the boundaries, is there? We no, would not make any, any kind of progress, whether it's intellectual or spiritual, without pushing those boundaries a little bit. So I very much enjoy going to these locations. I find it very fulfilling to take in a good team and to try and make contact with what's there. And I I don't believe in in challenging most of the time anyway, you know, scratch me, do your worst, those kind of things that you'll see on TV. I'm not an advocate for that. I'd rather try and communicate and build some mutually respectful uh, relationship and have that kind of interaction with the entities that are there. But sometimes they don't want that. They they will react um, aggressively, and such was the Guardian's nature.
3: Right. Let me ask you, in some of these places that you've been, and you've been to a lot of places, do you ever find um, any UFO flare happening around the areas that you're investigating? Is it is it part hmm. of it or, or not?
1: Well, you, you know, I'll no. tell you something that, that didn't go in the book, um, and it's something that we had talked about, but... Um, Cammy and I had ultimately left it out there has been more than one visitor to the asylum that insists they have seen the figures of alien creatures in Asylum 49 with large large bulbous heads and elongated fingers Um, and we talked about putting it in but we didn't have enough firstly we didn't have those encounters or at least I didn't have that encounter myself Uh, and there weren't enough eyewitnesses that I could really build an entire chapter around it so I don't discount it um by any means, though it does sound indeed very um fascinating. But it's something yeah. that I'd like to yeah, I'd like to gather more evidence of and I do know that Utah is is quite a state for UFO sightings, isn't it?
3: Oh yes. Yes.
1: So there's a connection there and it's also worth mentioning that Tuella is um is renowned for having a very large army depot.
3: Oh, where it, 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 close by?
1: Mhm. In the town, there's a there's a big military depot there.
3: Aha. Uh-huh. Huh. And what does it house? Nuclear, or what? Do you know?
1: No, it's. I believe it's primarily logistical support, or at least that's um, that's what I was able to glean from doing some reading on it. It's not that I've actually been there myself, however.
3: I wonder what the government knows about these kinds of things where 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 you've been investigating. You know, I don't
1: know, but in the in the case of this, perhaps you you or one of your contacts could find out more than I've been able to.
3: (laughs) Okay, all right. Well, I tell you, I really think this is a a fascinating book, and the way it's written, you know, um, you write so well that you can just see through your eyes as you're you know writing, and that's that to me, that's the mark of a a wonderful writer. But at this time, I'd like to um, pass you over to Ariel, my co-host, and she has the switchboard and would you be willing to answer some questions maybe from some people that maybe want to call absolutely. in
1: absolutely i'd okay. be
3: delighted then my my pleasure talking with you and when you do finish your next book please contact us we'll have you back on so back absolutely. to you Mario
4: okay <clears throat> wow <Well>, yeah <laughs> it takes quite a bit of courage to uh, to walk into the unknown as you have done and um, right now, if there is anyone that has a question or comment for Richard, if you're already on the switchboard, um, you need to uh, just press 1 so we know you have a question. If you're listening on the computer, then you need to dial 917 889 8292, and then once you're in, press 1. and uh, that that process is going to take a few minutes here. So um, you're, let's talk about your, your first book, In Search of the Paranormal. Is this like chronological? Was that your first book?
1: It was the second one. Well, it was the first that I wrote, but the second one published. And it is essentially my uh, autobiography of at least my uh, paranormal research. So In Search of the Paranormal it starts when I was a, a small boy and Looks at my early life initially at least, and then gets into my first experiences with a, a paranormal research team, and then looks at some of my more interesting cases over the past twenty years
4: and was that um, primarily in
1: England you know I put in a fifty fifty split roughly so half of my cases roughly were British, and then half were American and. It kind of breaks down today that about a third of my cases are British because I I live in the USA, in Colorado, and I have to fly home to investigate. So about a third of them these days are done in the U.K., and the remaining two-thirds are done in the United States. But I put in about a 50-50 split um, for the book, just to in- interest readers on both sides of the Atlantic.
4: Mhm. And are there, um, at least in the spirit realm, Um, is it the same? I mean, there's no difference between the, you know, British ghosts and American ghosts, the, the MO, the, the, um, you know, the typical things don't really matter what country you're in as far as they're concerned. Is that true?
1: Well, the British ghosts have worse teeth. Um, teeth.
4: In all seriousness,
1: seriousness, no, not really. Um, I mean, you tend to find that the locations in England are much older. I spent, I spent my summer investigating uh, with some good friends of mine, Jason and Linda Fellen. Um, I spent the summer investigating an old castle on the Scottish border, you know, which is hundreds of years old. And we investigated an old mansion from uh, Victorian days. And then we investigated a, a private residence that was home to the world's most violent reported poltergeist uh, incident on record. You know, so that was quite a diverse range. Um, and, and I think here in the U.S. we tend to see more relatively modern haunting things because there isn't quite that same recorded um, centuries upon centuries of history here.
4: Well, that makes sense. And have you have you gone to um, Scotland, Wales, or Ireland?
1: Yes, yeah, Scotland was something we did this summer with Kiel the Castle on the border, um, that was absolutely fascinating indeed. That was near a, a very old historic border town called Carlisle. And so we got to get into a little bit of the, the Scottish history. Um, Wales, not yet, but it's, it's somewhere that I would like to get to again uh, later on for future cases. And much the same is true for Ireland. Ireland has a very, very rich um, folklore of ghosts and hauntings. It's It's so embedded in the culture. And I would very much like to do an Irish ghost tour at some point in my in my coming career.
4: Well, that yeah, that would be really something. And yeah, you're right about the. I mean the the history I mean, you know goes back much farther. American history is only a couple hundred years old, so. Uh, I, know well, in, I, I think you,
1: you do have the Native American history here. It's not that there weren't events. It's just the fact that this was, you know, relatively speaking, the New World, and a lot of what would have happened wasn't documented in the same way as it was in the in Britain.
4: Right. Yeah, and I don't suppose there are that many um, Native American structures that have endured centuries.
1: Yeah, I, 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 that may well be the case. Certainly, there isn't okay. the um, the the structures aren't still standing, or at least as many of them as we have in the UK.
4: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it, when it would. Uh, I, I I spent a night in a castle, and I really wanted to have something happen. Um, and this was in Wales, but mm-hmm. um, I stayed up all night, and I was really disappointed because I thought for sure that they were all haunted, but <laughs> apparently not. But, well, another way, uh, maybe,
1: it, it may well be that it just wasn't that night.
4: Just wasn't that night. Yeah. Well, it, it's probably for the best because I, you know I could have been psychologically scarred. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it, it's just absolutely fascinating, and um, I'm still looking. I don't think we're going to have anybody um, calling with questions, but um, it has just been a, a wonderful uh, show having you tell about your work and some of the things that a lot of people just, you know, shy away from. But there is there are so many mysteries that need to be solved.
1: There are indeed, and it's it's a search that I don't see ending um anytime soon
4: well uh, you know <laughs> people cross over every day, and if they are unsettled or um un, unresolved business then uh it will continue. There's never going to be a shortage of of beings in the fourth dimension in the astral plane (laughs) so in that you you do have a um you know unlimited career to continue because there's always going to be new stories and new um occurrences
1: that's right and long may it remain so because i'll i'll get the answer i'm looking for personally if nothing else when all said and done
4: and what is that what is the question that what is driving you the motivation
1: well, I'm very much interested in knowing what happens to us after we die. If if some part of us survives, and what form that that takes.
4: Well, it seems like it, it seems like you've you've got that answer because there are certainly you know beings that have crossed over that you've made contact with in in various ways.
1: Well, you know, it's 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 very tempting to assume that what we're interacting with are the spirits of the dead, but there are other theories. There are people that think this is extra-dimensional communication. Others that think this is extra-terrestrial communication. When I say extra-dimensional, of course, I mean that we're dealing with physical beings in in other dimensions rather than the spirits of the deceased. And there are others that think all of those things are happening and and perhaps more. So it's a riddle within an enigma, within a conundrum, to paraphrase the old (laughs)
4: quote. Well, I can tell you that our audience, um, completely, it, it's beyond a matter of belief. They know um, about, you know, just changing, dropping the physical and going to another dimension. And, and you know, life goes on, even without a body. Mm-hmm. And I, certainly I do suspect
1: that's the case.
4: Yeah, yeah, well, energy doesn't ever go away. It just changes form. So you know, life energy is is perpetual, and it may change form, but it 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 never goes away. It just might mutate. Um, so have you had have you had um, entities that that made you feel good? You know, that where their energy was really loving and and gentle and kind.
1: I, I don't know about, about that. I don't tend to be empathic in nature, so. They don't really engender feelings in me, which is very much a double-edged sword because on the one hand, I, I don't get those experiences you, you were just refer, referring to. But on the other, I also don't seem to get the dark, brooding, depressive um, experiences that I know some of the best investigators have found as a negative byproduct of their investigations. So I tend to be rather emotionally neutral. Uh, when I come to these cases. What I do get an emotional attachment to, though, is the story of the individuals themselves. And a good example of that, again, is when I went to the Waverley Hill Sanatorium, uh, and in some rooms they have the photographs of, of tuberculosis patients that had been resident there and, in some cases, had died there. And to stand uh, in that spot, to walk in their footsteps and, and to think about their lives and, and what it must have felt like to be in that kind of institution, you know, it absolutely breaks your heart. So while I don't experience the energies directly, the stories and the characters um, do affect me deeply, and that's why I like to write about them and, and try and take readers along with me for the journey.
4: Mm. Well, you just keep on your investigations and looking for more and more answers to questions that you may not even have yet. So it is an ongoing process. But we do I will thank you for do that. <laughs> we do thank you for being with us, and um, once again,
0: your website is Richard Estep, and that is Richard E S T E P And um, your books are available
4: there. Are they also in other outlets like Amazon?
1: They are, and they're, they're in uh, brick and mortar stores like Barnes and Noble, also.
4: Excellent, excellent. So um, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with us. And let us know when your next book comes out.
1: Thank you, ma'am. I will, and I wish you a very pleasant evening.
4: And thank you, too. We'll be thinking about you on Halloween. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, with that, I would like to uh, thank everyone for listening. And on behalf of everyone here at Starseed Radio Academy, wish you a great week. And do
0: remember to count your blessings every day and live in grace. Good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com.